The Sports Career Podcast, episode 269. How can mindset training improve performance when under pressure? Hello Sports Achiever and thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Sports Career Podcast. I'm your host Ed Bowers. As always, my goal each week is to provide you a special guest who's an expert in a particular sector in the sports industry, especially if you have an interest in pursuing a career in coaching. I hope today's episode can support you with regards to your sports career development, interests and needs. Now, getting back to today's episode, this week's podcast special guest is Dave Diggle. Dave is an author, speaker, high-performance mindset coach, and the founder of Smart Mind Hub, where he specializes in mental performance to support coaches and athletes so they can compete under pressure with regards to competing at the best level of their ability. For example, he has worked with a range of elite athletes such as rugby players, gymnasts, cricketers, UFC fighters, motorsport racers, and even the national men's Australian rugby team. For that reason, it's such a privilege to have Dave as a podcast special guest. And that's when today's episode, Dave will share his sports career journey and explain to you how mindset training can improve your performance when under pressure. Dave, it's such a pleasure to have you on the podcast show. Please you share to listeners your sports career journey. When did it all start? Oh, thanks for having me on. I, I guess my entry into the sporting world is not your, your normal entry into the sporting world. Um, when I was around about five or six years old, I was a very active little kid, like most little kids, particularly back in the late 60s, early 70s, just an, a, a terror away kid. But I was incredibly accident prone too. I spent most of my time in, in casualty and my parents couldn't work out what was going on. Multiple different um, tests and, and different doctors. And they found out I was deaf in one ear and load of nerve damage. So I have no natural sense of balance. So my entry into sport actually came from a, a background of trying to stop me falling over and actually give me some sense of balance. So that's why I ended up in gymnastics. It wasn't because I showed any talent or any real drive to do that at that time. It was purely and simply a necessity. Wow. So really quickly on that, if I'm correct, I very young, going back in my days, I had grommets in my ears, a bit different, but more... There's a, if I'm correct with the year, that's where an area where balance is so important. Is that correct? Just to emphasize to listeners that it's really where the ears are that it does relate to our balance, if that makes sense. Yeah, look, 100%. There's, there's fluid in our ears, and that fluid in our ears is our, our equilibrium. So if we, if we start to tip one way, the fluid moves, and our brain senses that and goes, we're moving, so it, it counteracts that. I, I don't have that in my left-hand side at all. And, I, and I've never had that. I've got no nerves in my left-hand side. And so, therefore, I would be that typical kid. I was running down the road, and I'd just fall over. And my parents started thinking, okay, there's obviously something wrong with this kid. So um, so that that's my entry into sport. A little bit unorthodox. Um, but it's it's given me a platform that I've learned so much about. And it's only probably retrospectively as I've got older, 
I've seen some of the real positives that came out of that. Just what have been the positives? Because you've got me really curious now. Like I wouldn't thought at the beginning of this conversation we talk about balance and ears, but I think this is quite curious with regards to your career in the high performance coaching world. So could you just paint that picture of how it supported you now? Yeah. So um, obviously tenacity. I think that the easiest way to uh, would have been to give up. And like, many doctors back in the earlier days, again, early 70s, saying to my parents, wrap him in cotton wool, he's, he's going to be an accident going somewhere to happen. But the, the fact that they didn't, they threw me into a sport, I think I became very adaptive and a huge amount of tenacity. So I was fortunate enough to represent Great Britain a number of times as a gymnast, but I, it, as I say, it wasn't necessarily done through talent. It was more tenacity driven. So there's that aspect of it too, but also in what I do today, a massive part of what I do is observation. Not having great hearing means I have to be very acute with the things that I do here. I do pick up on tonality a lot and I'm very observant. So those key areas of just skills I've had to learn as a kid that have now paying dividends in what I do. Just on that point of observation and other senses, because I'm a big believer that communication does come to our senses. Um, I don't know yet with sense of smell yet, but with regards to when I've had other, I've had um, blind people on my show and I can tell they hear my tone a lot more, for example, when I speak to them. And I've had to be more cute as well because they can't see me on the screen. So may I ask how your other senses have elevated your communication skills in the work you do, particularly with elite athletes, where it's all about those fine margins of right communication at the right time to get that right performance. Yeah, absolutely. So for me, a lot of it is body language, uh, facial facial expressions, tonality in the skin, their actual full body language, their engagement levels, particularly in working with big teams. You know, I've just finished working this season with the Wallabies, uh, the Australian Rugby Union team. And they're out in the paddock training. They've got the coaches screaming and shouting at them. I can stand there and see what players are engaged, what players are struggling, purely and simply in, in reading their body language. Wow. So let's just paint the picture for the listener from your coaching journey. So you, you talked about the bit about the gymnastics, Great Britain, but could you just paint the picture of how you decided actually going, actually, this is the route I want to go long term in sort of coaching in general? Yeah, so when I when I retired from gym, I went into coaching like most athletes do at some level. Started in the UK and then I went to the US and I was coaching a high performance gymnastics program in the US. And then I got headhunted to come to Australia for the 2000 games and work on the Australian gymnastics program over here as a coach, as a atypical coach. When I was an athlete, I realized I was incredibly inconsistent. And back in those days, I thought it was a me thing. I thought I, it was just, I wasn't talented. I was just tenacious. So therefore, the ability to be consistent wasn't on my radar. When I started coaching, I started seeing it in a lot of different athletes. And I realized it wasn't a technical thing because there was a lot of great technical coaches around. I realized it wasn't a work ethic thing because these athletes and myself included was big on working hard. So if it wasn't technical and it wasn't physical, it had to be psychological. So I took myself out of face-to-face -face coaching and went back and I studied the psychology of what we were doing and realized the missing link was the psychology. 
So that that's my journey. I've, I got there again, probably off the back of realizing some shortcomings in my career and then starting seeing those patterns in other performers and other coaching environments, not just gymnastics, but I've been exposed to a lot of different sports. And so there, the psychology of it just made, made logical sense to me. Before we talk about the psychology of coaching, mental training, which you're currently doing with regards to consistency, because that is today's podcast. Of it. I just want to take a step back because some of my listeners actually are athletes who, who, you know, want to go in that coaching world and also just coaches who just want to do that as a career. Would you mind sharing, reflecting from your coaching career, what the core qualities, I know you've talked about body language and, and sort of like observation, but looking back from your whole career, from a coaching standpoint, what core skills have really supported you that can help somebody at that foundational level? Yeah, look, I think ironically listening, as somebody who's got hearing issues, ironically listening has been probably the biggest skill set I see in a coaches. The coaches that listen and engage with the athletes in a way that the, the athlete feels heard, the coach feels heard, then there's a collaboration that moves forward. So without a doubt, I, I often say, when I, le- I lecture a lot, I say to coaches all the time, the number one skill set you have to get is to be able to listen. Humans are a pack animal, so we gravitate to certain sports, but within that, we're all individuals. So if it works for one, it doesn't necessarily work for everybody. And we've got to be able to listen and be have the ability to manage those moments and hear what's really important to one athlete. Uh, probably the other areas is probably being conscious about measurement in sport in particular we tend to focus on the outcome being an olympian going to this competition being selected i always say to all of my clients how do you eat an elephant and the answer is a chunk at a time otherwise you choke so being conscious about what are our metrics to get to what we want and making sure that we recognize and reward those metrics creates momentum so when I say to, to coaches all the time is reward the successes along the way, even more so than actually getting to the end step. So it's really having those milestones in, in place to get that dopamine effect of we've achieved this and then we can hopefully Correct. get the bigger reward at the end. That's really fascinating. And one thing I just want to touch yep. on, and it's probably about adaptability, because like you said, you've worked with the Wallabies, which is a team environment. Also, you work with some clients who are like, oh, gymnasts who are more individual. Is there a difference from a coaching standpoint, from a team to individual, from a process perspective of coaching? A really good question. And I get asked that all the time. You know, if if you're in one, how do you work in the other? My, My catalyst for what I do is I start with the individual. And even if they're in a team environment, so I've just been on tour with the Wallabies and there were 60 odd guys I was working with daily and I'd say to every single one of them the best version of you everybody benefits from so let's start by building that best version of you and so the fundamentals are exactly the same whether you're a gymnast and you're on your own or you're a rugby player in a team of 60 odd guys then the reality is you have to build you first then we get the nuances of different sport requirements so as an individual athlete like a gymnast external communication isn't a massive part of the curriculum if you're working in a big team environment it is but the connection to both of those is that internal communication is exactly the same so getting an athlete to i I always say that um, 
our internal communications, our operating system. If you had an iPad and you had a Galaxy tablet, you couldn't download an iOS operating system on a Galaxy tablet. Even though the internal components are the same, it won't work. So we've got to understand those operating systems of each individual, and that's our language patterns. And there's one thing just for any young coaches listening go, wow, you know, Dave, you're working with the, you know, the Australian rugby team. I just want to bring a reality check that I would like to talk about trust here with the coach and the athlete, because somebody said to me on this show that Ed it's not high performance coaching. It's still coaching. It's sometimes we get carried yeah, away totally. with high performance. So would you mind just sharing to listeners that as much as it must be a, a really great role to do that, but there are the fundamentals of like having that connection or trust with an athlete at, it doesn't matter what level. Would you mind just sharing your thoughts on that? Because I think that's really important from any young coaches who want to aspire to have that opportunity. Yeah, look, absolutely. And that's a really good statement because for me, it's all about the person. So high performance and grassroots are exactly the same. For me, it's all about getting to know that person, building a relationship, building rapport, they need to trust you and you need to trust them. And I, I always say to them, look, you know, I won't do this to you or I won't do it for you, but I will do it with you. We're a team when we do this. And so that's, for me, a, a fundamental. And I, I love working with the people I do, and, and it's taken me 20 years to get to this point. But I also still, on a day-to-day basis, go back and work with those grassroots athletes, and whether it be in a, in a pool, whether it be around a track or on an ice rink. I'm still doing exactly the same thing. Still looking at that individual athlete and thinking, how do we make the best version of you? And just to go in a bit more detail of the difference between um, grassroots coaching and let's say working with those high performance athletes, I assume it's more technical coaching at the grassroots and then at the high level, it's more management or partnership of, you know, because they've already got the technical skills. They probably just need help with more the management of their skills at the pressured situation. Is that the difference? that makes sense no no, not really to be honest with you uh, at the high end you still have the same skill acquisition challenges so the skills themselves may change but the process of how they learn those skills doesn't necessarily get any easier as you get further up the tree in actual fact the pressure gets harder and so therefore learning skills is a bigger consequence to not getting them and i find with young athletes who are just starting out they're, they're like sponges. They learn really quickly. My job then is to create the framework for replicability. At the high end, yes, they got a better understanding, but it's all about pressing go and, and execution. So, But they still have the same concerns and the same challenges. What I do for a living working inside people's heads, although it's a much more accepted part of most organizations now, it's still seen as quite the, the new boy on the, on the block sort of thing. So some of these athletes, I, so I've been on tour with them, who'd never been exposed to this, even at that high performance level. Um, so it's just as new to them as a kid kicking a, a ball around on a park. Wow. I hope people are taking notes. and You've got me really interested even more. And I would love to talk about now today's podcast topic, which is how can mental training improve consistent performance when under pressure? Because I know you talked about consistency already, but really I'm fascinated of the win-win of consistency, but also delivering high-performance performances, if that makes sense. Yeah, so I think the key thing for 
coaches to understand is that it's all a blueprint inside the brain. And the clearer the blueprint is, the clearer the execution can be. Think of it like a domino set inside your head. When you tip the first one, it should knock on effect to all the dominoes. If that dominoes is out of line, then you get a fracture or a break in performance. And that tends to happen with an increase of emotion. So if, um, if you're out on a field somewhere and you're kicking a ball around and it's just a normal training session, there's very little consequence to things not working. So we don't tend to put a lot of emphasis on the how. It's just, oh, this feels good, this feels comfortable, I feel confident. And then you go and step into a major stadium and there's 50,000 people looking at you and the emotions higher, you will forget the how. So my job is to help athletes really understand how they do those skills, build their blueprint inside their brain. And so then that's the replicability and consistency in any performance. Whether you're cleaning your teeth or riding a bike or doing multiple somersaults or something, the brain acts exactly the same way. It builds a blueprint and if we trust it and it's consistent, then that's what we produce. And particularly under pressure. If we go to a big event, our brain will go back to what's the most familiar. So if familiarity, sorry, if, if familiarity is you going out and just going, yeah, I'm going to kick it around and if it works, it works and if it feels good, I'll keep doing it, then that's what you'll do under pressure. You'll go back to that inconsistent, yeah, if it feels good, it won't feel good under pressure. It's going to feel very, very different. You've got me even more thinking now, is this why pre-match routines are quite important? to trigger that so yes they build a habit but also at the same time when they are in that stadium of 50,000 they're in a more of a flow state is that sort correct of the goal yeah so is it okay if I get a little bit nerdy absolutely so the prefrontal cortex the front part of our brain is like the boss in the office they make all the decisions they do all the delegations they do everything that's designed to make that business work but like most bosses, they're very, very slow at what they do. The subconscious, where flow happens, is like the workers in the factory. They don't think, they don't have to make up these, their job is just to do. And what we know now is our subconscious works around about 20 times faster than our conscious. And the only way to take it from the boss in the office to the factory floor is through trust. When you trust the process, it gets delegated to our subconscious is where flow happens. If you don't trust what you're doing, if there's no metrics for you to trust what you're doing, it will always stay in the boss's office, which is why under pressure, things feel like it's so slow. You've got no time. Everything is taking too long. You know, the, the, the game's going on and it's going past you. That's because you haven't learned to trust the process. When you learn to trust the process, you're going at 20 times faster in your thought process and you're actually keeping up or you're in front of the, the action. So trust is, is a key mechanism. With regards to the trust element, because I think this is so important, would you say with the people you've worked with, just roughly here, is there a, a time scale of how long it takes to sink in that it works? Because the first time will always feel a bit like Bambi on ice sort of thing. It will feel uncomfortable, <laughs> right? But from your experience, because I know you've worked with some rug players and they've been working with you for five years, so just giving that as an example, um, with the clients you work, would you say it's taken them a good year or two? Like what, what your like guesstimations of trusting the process, how long from a time period 
to get that habit succinct with, as you say, the front office to the, the factory floor, which I love that analogy, by the way. So I, I'm going to upset you here and say there is no time, ideal time zone. When I work with people, one of the first things I do is build that trust with them. And then what I'm looking for is what's your tipping point? How do you know you know what you need to know? So if they're doing a skill and they say, oh, look, you know, when, when I can do it three times out of five, I'm going to be happy. That for me is a trigger. And so there I'll go, okay, right. You've done it once, you've done it twice, you've done it three times. So now you're telling me you trust this. So my language patterns shift. And it all, a lot of it is uh, a little bit of smoke and mirrors at first. I'm looking for key triggering points of their convincers. Everybody has different convincers. To convince the time, convince the actions. What most athletes will say is, when I've done it in competition, I'll trust it. Well, that's too late. That's too late. Because if you get there and you don't trust it, you end up with a, a poor competition, which means you're going to trust it even less when you go back to training. So we've got to get to a point before it gets to a competition where the athlete goes, yeah, I've got this. I know I know what I need to do. So is that so, probably why, just sorry, sorry to interrupt, is that probably why when, um, you know, I'm sticking to the sport rugby because I quite know it quite well, when you, I'm going to relate to Johnny Wilkerson, one of my favourite rugby players of all time, when he was in the final, you know, in that drop goal, for example, he already done so many more drop goals through, throughout that period before that moment. Is that where the triggers of that one skill, it was a bit effortless for him. I know it's on his wrong foot, but he still executed it because he, ha he had done that skill X amount of times. Is that what you're also referring to as well? Yeah, a number of times is a confirmation. The actual trigger is normally a, a very specific tipping point. So they may say, you know, I've done it um, in the flow of, of a practice game. I've done it. I know it. So that's a, that's a tipping point. That's the trigger. Then you compound that by doing it frequently. And that's where so I, I talk about confidence a lot. People come to me all the time and say, I've got to build my confidence. And I'll say to them, what is confidence? And the reality is, over the 20 years I've been running this business, no one's come and said the same two things to me. Everybody has a different interpretation of what confidence is. The most simple version of that is, for me, is what I tell everybody is, all confidence is, is a history of success. If you've done some certain things a number of times and you recognize them, you're confident at it. You know you can do it. If you do it the same amount of times that you don't recognize it, then you're not confident. It's that recognition mechanism where you kind of go, yep, I've done that, I can do that. Yeah, I can do it again, and I can do it again. And you build confidence and you build that trust. You mentioned a really big word, which is a word I'm learning from a more business world is compounding. Like how important is that? Would you mind just emphasizing that point? Because I haven't heard that from a coach of, you know, using compounding as a, a method with regards to like coaching or even mental training. Could you just share what compounding is and how important yeah. is it as well from a performance standpoint? Yeah, absolutely. And you're right. Not a lot of coaches do think about it in that context. Compounding works in both directions. So if you make a mistake and you over-focus on that mistake, then you compound those mistakes because it becomes valuable in your brain. Uh, one of the key things we don't understand about our brain when we're coaching is or our brain's mechanism of recognizing a value is not what do I get from it, it's how often do I think about it. So if you think about falling off, making mistakes, 
your brain will interpret that as going, that's way more important to me than a success. So if we can compound successes, then we build momentum. When we build momentum, it builds in, in size too. The imagery I use when I'm working with athletes, I've got a snowball on top of a mountain. And I said, if we push that snowball down the mountain, what happens? And they say it picks up snow. And as it picks up snow, it grows. As it grows, it gets faster. So for me, that's compounding. You want to compound success. You release uh, serotonin, you release dopamine in the brain. You want to do it again. So that compounding of success, if we've got clear metrics, what's your objective today? I want to go out, you're going to use rugby. I want to kick five goals. Cool, did you do that? Yes, I did. Outstanding. What did you do to make that happen? I did this, this, and this. Superb. So we're going to do that tomorrow. And we compound that success. And just really quickly, with the snowball effect, just keeping that as the analogy, imagine there are a few uh, rocks along the way because I would love to talk about that. Not all success is a easy straight line. There's always uh, those milestones of uh, <laughs> adversity or poor performance. What's your guidance of when they do hit that micro stone to then bounce back? You know, all, all, all teams go through it. They have a bit of a slump. Let's call it a slump, make it easier for the listener. How do you bounce back from a slump, but still keep that big snowball going? That makes sense. So there's two parts to this for me. Like uh, the first part, I'll explain with a bit of a story about one of my clients. So I work with a um, UFC fighter, and she was one of the only UFC fighters from Australia to go into the UFC house. And when I was working with her, I said to her, "Okay, what's our objective?" And she goes, "I, I want to do really, really well. I want to establish myself as a long-term fighter." And I said to her, "Okay, what do you do for a living when you're not fighting?" And she's gone, oh, I live on a farm and it's a horse stuttery. And I've gone, okay, so what do you do most days? She goes, I fix fences. And I've gone, okay, when you fix a fence, what do you do? And she's a scary, scary woman. She goes to me, Dave, it's not rocket science, I fix a fence. I said, yeah, but work with me here. What's the first thing you do? She goes, I get a piece of string and I go to where I want the end to fit the, the fence to finish and I tie it off there. And she goes, ah, I get it. I've got to know where I'm going. When I know where I'm going, when I'm building the fence, if I have to go over a rock, I go over the rock. If I have to go around something, I go around. But I still keep in mind where I'm going. So for me, when I'm working with athletes, absolutely 100%, whether it be a team, an individual, whether it be a national team, or, or a young kid first starting out. What I ask them to do is a picture, where do you want to be? And how important is that to you? Because when you hit a roadblock, what I want you to do is find a way around it. So the second part of that is recognition and reward again. So when it's working and we're building momentum, those little pebbles actually don't feel like anything when you're on a roll. So if you get those two working in, in unison together, very, very clear path, and if there's something in the way, doesn't matter, I'm going to find a way to get around and be solution orientated, get around that and keep on my path. But the only way I'm going to do that is keep refilling by making sure that my successes are important to me, build my confidence, I can get over and get around anything. And just to be clear, this isn't just applicable in sport, right? This is applicable to all 
walks of life like that fence example is a great example of what you've just shared but just for the listeners if you don't mind I'm going to just pivot the conversation a little bit with regards to applying for roles or putting themselves out there in the big world world this is applicable. is that correct of what you've just said 100 percent. and um unless you get out of bed in the morning and change your brain for what you're doing it's the same brain that goes it goes to school goes to university goes to a job has a relationship and does sport so those same frameworks that we build in sport get applied everywhere. I had a, um, an Iron Man I was working with and we had a very successful period of time together and about four years after we stopped working together, I was driving my car and um, my, his phone number came up in my car and I've gone, hey, how are you? A long time, I haven't heard from you for a long time. And he goes, oh mate, I'm doing really, really well and uh, have you got five minutes for a conversation? I said, yeah, sure. He's going, I just want to say thank you. I said, what for? I said, we finished our competition life five years ago. And he goes, yeah. He said, but I didn't realize what you were teaching me wasn't just about my sport. I've now built a business with the same frameworks. I now communicate to my staff in the same way. He said, and it's changed my life. So 100% how you learn how to do one thing is how you do most things. If it's successful, then you're going to apply that success in everything that you do. Wow. Like, thank you so much for sharing that little, because honestly, I've literally, just just be clear, but it's the first time I met Dave and I've learned a lot already in this conversation. And I can tell with all the stories you've shared, just more how much, one, you have the dedication of your role and the job you do, which I can tell you enjoy it. But I'm just curious on this, like from all the people you've worked with, how have, I know you've helped them, but how have they helped you about your coaching philosophy because some of the stuff you said in this conversation is new to me which really gets me really more intrigued but I'm curious about your own personal development along the way yeah so look I, I am a I'm a nerd at heart so you know I read a lot I, I watch a lot I study a lot I love that part of it however that's a really small part of my education my growth every athlete every organization a good 30 percent of my clients are business people I'm constantly learning and being able to be uh, innovative in what I do allows me to to stretch and grow as well there's there's no in my my opinion there's no one set way to do anything being able to be adaptive and grow with it has allowed me to grow and do what I do if I look at how I coach today as to when I first started coaching 20 years ago it's that compounding effect. Every single client that's passed past me has allowed me to grow and add another layer of how I can do what I do. Whether it be confirmation of this is working or whether it's been the ability for me to look at it and go, I've got to think outside the box here. There's got to be something I do that's slightly different to get a better result for him or her. When I first started doing online stuff, uh, I used to create a, a huddle room and what that is was I'd have skaters, I'd have gymnasts, I'd have rugby players, football players, soccer players. Everybody was in this room. The first part of it, I would teach them a new skill or a new strategy. The second part of the process was an open forum. And you'd get someone like a, a rugby player who's not known for their ability to think outside of their rugby world. And they'd say, I've got this challenge. And you might have a ballerina turn and go, we've had that. But in our sport, we, we approached it in a different way. 
So that cross-platform of different minds, and it just broadens everybody's horizon of what's possible. And it was such a fertile place for athletes to kind of go, I've learned something. It don't have to stick to what my sports told me I have to stick to. I can think of it slightly different. Just on that point, I'm going to give an example because I saw one very recently actually on Instagram of a tennis coach sharing how to improve a back, um, single-handed backhand by a frisbee movement. <laughs> Out of interest, uh, I hope that makes sense of my visuals on Zoom, but my, my, my question I have is uh, just for coaches that they can learn from other sports and integrate it in their main sport. How has that supported you as a coach? That makes sense. Look, I, I think I'll give you a really good example. One of my rugby players I work with, I've been talking about some kicking techniques with him for, for a long time, and there was some resistance to him changing his kicking technique. And we had to change it because there was injury involved. Like the frequency of before I worked with him of trying to do hundreds and hundreds of kicks had caused some injuries that were long-term. So we had to change his kicking technique, but he was resistant to change. And I said to him, okay, what do you do outside of rugby? He goes, Dave, I love to play golf. So I stopped talking to him about rugby and started talking to him about golf, golf swing and efficiency and effectiveness, changing the grip. And then he came back to me about two weeks later and he goes, did it without you. I've changed my kicking technique. And when we sat down and we unpacked it, he goes, ah, is what you were saying in my golf, I've then taken it into my, into my kicking in rugby. So there's multiple different ways to get into the same outcome. I, I kind of see myself as a linguistic choreographer. I tend to dance athletes to a place where they didn't really realize they needed to be, but I do it in a way with no resistance because I make it fun and interactive along the way. I want to just touch on that about resistance and change. Um, I know we all develop, grow, change over time, but why do you think we get that resistance? Instead of like you ticking him two weeks to let golf do the talking to make him prove his kick in, but not change straight in that instant. Cause in a way he's lost two weeks of time. I know he's probably learning, but I'm, I'm just curious of from your experience over the last 20 years, your thoughts on how we can reduce that resistance and just make the change and move on to that better performance. I'd love your thoughts on that. Yes. One of the key things all humans share is a fear of the unknown. So if we don't know the outcome or we don't have a plan for the outcome, then everybody resists. doesn't matter who you are. doesn't matter how tenacious you are. You're not going to change if you don't know where it's going to take you. So becoming very clear on this is what I'm doing for this outcome. So we'll go back to the UFC fighter. Getting very, very clear on the outcome. This is what I'm striving for. Everything I do to get there is part of the journey. This is why I talk about the end step is an objective. It's emotional. It's like the, the light that attracts the moth. Everything we do to get there are goals because we can, we can reward a goal. Everyone, everyone jumps up and down and screams and shouts when there's a goal. So we want to make sure that that end step is really clear for them and how they're going to get there. The path we're going to build is super clear and concise for them. So what we end up doing is re reducing some of that resistance. Now, all humans have a resistance. And I, and I liken to a bungee cord attached to us. The more we pull, the more that wants to pull us back to familiarity, where we was before. 
So being very, very clear about the steps along the way ends up pulling that bungee cord until it snaps. When that bungee cord snaps, when they move on to the next phase. But knowing there's going to be resistance and being okay, being comfortable with the uncomfortable, I guess. I think I've learned from you just then, we all live on bungee cords, but when they break, we're on a new one in a way. That's how real growth happens, if that's correct. That's right, absolutely. Um, wow, what a fascinating conversation. I'm going to pivot the conversation again because I'd love for you to share about what you do now, just if people want to hear more about, but also your podcast show. I love your thought, like what inspired you to do your podcast show? And could you just provide listeners a little snapshot of what the show is about? Yeah, so it's called Brain in the Game. And it started when people were asking me to to get involved and help them. And they were seeing I was getting some some good traction in certain areas. And they wanted to share that. But being a, a one-man band, it was impossible to be for me to be everywhere. So I started sharing some of the core techniques. I, I wanted coaches in particular to have a different perspective. It's important. Athletes are very hungry. They want change. Coaches are normally quite resistant to change. So it has to become an education process. So they need to change because they see the value in it. So that's an education process. Athletes tend to change when something's not working. They'll try something new. So there's a different driver for both of those. So the podcast for me was an opportunity to share for athletes, coaches, and parents. And I, when I'm working with an athlete, I make sure I spend time with their coach. I also make sure I spend time with their parents, or if they're older athletes, I spend time with their partners. So that every, everybody understands their role in building this athlete. And so that, for me, was a, a great platform and podcast. It's been a little bit inconsistent, inconsistent over the last couple of years, but um, I've started migrating a little bit towards the video trainings as well. So people are visually driven these days more so than ever. Absolutely. I just want to touch on one thing there, because we've talked about the athlete, the coach. I'd love to just have a little snapshot on significant others, which you just mentioned, the parent or the partners. How big is that relating to your experience the last 20 years of their involvement, that part of that conversation from, so it makes the athlete perform to the best ability, but also the coach. I'd love your thoughts on that. Yeah, this is a little bit controversial because I actually think the parents or the significant other play a more significant role than the coach often. Because an athlete will follow a coach technically, but not necessarily need to believe in them or even like them. Whereas if they've got parents or they've got significant others, their emotional buy-in is, I want them to be happy. So they're more likely to listen to them. I've found a lot of success in sitting down with a partner and saying, hey, this is what we're trying to get your partner to do. What's some of the resistance? What they come in home and having chats with you about? And they go, oh, they come home and they'll say this, 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 and this, which allows us all to work collaboratively. So for, for me, it, it's a massive part of what I do. Um, I'll sit with the families often. I'll often go and, and that, that's a, a, a two-way street too. My, my family, my wife and my three kids have sat around the dinner table with most of these elite athletes. And so they see that I'm human. They see that I've got family and they get to hear different sides of me too. So that slight vulnerability allows them to open up and their partners to talk to me as well. Like you said right at the beginning, it builds that trust, which I love Correct, that, yeah. you know, around the table um, sort of uh, example. Dave, what a wonderful conversation. I don't really want it to tend to be honest, but there's always that sort of time. But 
I'd love to, I've got a couple of more questions. And, and one is this one, looking back now for where you currently are, what have you enjoyed the most from your sports career journey, particularly from a coaching standpoint? I, I think one of the things that is at the core of who I am is being able to get into a place and make it my own. I think sport and in particular what I do now has given me the opportunity to create a, a world where I can thrive. So I've, I felt I've grown. It's given me a very fertile environment. Um, I instantly went and started running my own business rather than work for other people so that I can innovate and I can grow. So that's given me as an individual that side of what I've done in my sport. Um, it's also given me an opportunity to share that with my family. We, we're very fortunate. We travel the world together when there was no COVID. And they've, they've sat at F1 racing tracks. They've sat at Olympic Games. They've done all of those kind of really cool things that I share with them. They say they've had dinners with some of the most successful people and, and some of the new up-and-coming athletes and had those conversations too. So for me, sport has been an awesome place to explore and grow. That's uh, probably the biggest thing that I've got from that. Amazing. And as always, I like to finish with an inspirational question. You've provided bags with regards to the coaching mindset training, but I, I like to just get to the basics of working in this sports industry, if that's okay with you. What three qualities for the listeners that can apply straight out of this podcast chat would you give to them with regards to pursuing a career in the sports industry? So the three I've got is adaptability. Because the key thing with any kind of performance, whether it's business performance, whether it's education, whether it's sport, is the ability to be able to manoeuvre and adapt to what's going on around you. If you're too rigid, then it will break you. So being able to manoeuvre and move with that is, is massive. Innovation. I think the key thing that we have a great platform to do is to innovate. It doesn't mean you throw things away just because somebody else has done it, but look at it and go, how do I make that better? You know, uh, that whole 4% growth mindset, everything that I I do with an athlete. So I've before I came on this podcast with you, I came home from working with some athletes. Part of my process tonight was what worked, what didn't work, what do I do different? And how do I grow this? So that when I go out tomorrow, I want to be better than I was today. So that for me, being innovative in what I do is, is super important. And I think the third thing is know who you are. We know what you bring to the table. And I, I can't do everything. And I know that and I'm okay with that. But I know what I'm good at. And being able to back that, particularly as young coaches, I know when I first started coaching, I thought I had to know everything. And that, that just made me feel uncomfortable and feel vulnerable. Instead of saying, you know what? I said to you at the start, about eating elephants. This is what I do really, really good. Now, how do I grow that and get better at this or get better at that? And be comfortable, it's going to take time. Well, I really love all those three um, tips or qualities, I should say. Out of interest, how can people interact with you online? Yeah, so my website is smartmindhub.com, which is an easy place to go and see all everything, podcasts included, or Smart Mind Institute on Facebook. So they're the, they're the two areas um, where most people get hold of. That is great to all the listeners listening in. All those links will be on my website with regards to this podcast blog post. Look, Dave, it's been such a joy chatting with you today. Thank you very much. My pleasure. 
what a brilliant podcast chat with Dave. And to be really honest, I don't know where to start because there is so much I enjoyed from that conversation. Firstly, if you're a coach, I've got hope you've got a better understanding of learning from Dave from his experience and having the right processes with regards to one, having that connection with the player first. That was my biggest takeaway, which can I say is so applicable in the business world of coaching or working with a client of establishing that trust. I really enjoyed that. But the biggest takeaway that I enjoyed the most was the example Dave gave with regards to working with that UFC fighter and fixing the fence. At the beginning, it seemed a very common question of how to fix a fence. But then the process, the power of the learning lesson here was knowing the direction you want to go, which is so important. It's something I learned very quickly on this podcast show from a sports career development standpoint is know the direction you want to go, have the outcome in mind, and then, like Dave said, really establish those mini wins along the way. Like, there is so much in this conversation, if you read between the lines or listening between the lines, I should say, of what Dave's saying, it's so transferable in other walks of life. So look, I really do hope you've enjoyed this podcast chat. And if you did, I would really appreciate an honest review rating of this episode and share it to me with regards to wherever you listen to the podcast, iTunes, Spotify, it makes a difference. But Honestly, there's so much that I will have to re-listen to this podcast and learn from Dave again. But also, I want you to take action from this podcast. Like, without a doubt, knowledge is powerful, but actually, knowledge with taking action creates new habits and a new direction of your own performance or your own career development. So let me know on Twitter or on Instagram at edbowers101 your biggest takeaway and how you're going to put that into action. But in the meantime, take action from this podcast and make it happen. Now, as always, at the end of each podcast episode, I'd like to finish with an inspirational quote from my guest speaker. Dave said, develop that 4% mindset on what worked, what didn't work, what could I do differently? And how can I grow from this?